Good morning. Thank you. How's it going? Good. Happy Palm Sunday, my dudes. Um, hope you're having a great one so far. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, uh, my name is Crooksy, one of the pastors at the Southside location of Rehope. I was a kids pastor here for like seven years or something like that before uh, my wife Jamie and I took a brief uh, learning by doing hiatus from Rehope in Portland, Oregon. But we got back last uh, December and we're, yeah, we're loving it. And I love that I get to tell you this story today. Pam Sunday is class and um, a really good story to tell. And I love a good story. Um, I love a long story. For me, the beauty is in the details, like adding extra details into the stories, like, you know, like seasoning your food and it just makes everything better. And um, when I get to tell the full story with all those juicy details, I just love it. Um, I love it when I'm telling a story or maybe like watching a show or like whatever. Do you know when it's got like that like main story arc, but then there's like a secondary or like a tertiary thing going on and then they kind of like weave in like a little bit, then they all tie them up neatly at the end. And you're like, oh, that's so clever. I love that. I love that. But the Bible takes like a little bit of a different approach to storytelling, so I'm going to have a go at that today. And the way that the Bible normally does storytelling, or at least like Old Testament stuff, like this is like an ancient Hebrew thing, so it's, it sometimes feels weird for us to receive stories like that because like we're modern day people and we don't like live in a Middle Eastern context. Um, but when we hear a story, we think we're going to like go from the start in order to the finish, and whatever little details need to be sprinkled in there, we'll sprinkle them all in at once. But the Bible does things differently. It'll start at the start, and it'll tell the story all the way through with one perspective so that you get it. And then it'll go back to the start, and it'll tell the story all over again from a different point of view with a different focus so that you get it too. It doesn't want to like mix things up in case things get lost. It's just going to go from the start to the end, then back to the start, then to the end. A good example of this is uh, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, which tell us the story of God making everything. And, and Genesis chapter 1, and even like the first little bit of chapter 2, is all about who made the world. It's not so bothered with how God made the world. The point is that God made the world. It answers the question, who made the world? But then when you get to like the second paragraph of chapter two, you're starting to see that there's no plants and there's no rain and there's no people. So if we read that like the way we receive stories, then it's like God starts and there's nothing. He makes everything. And then all of a sudden there's nothing again. So like did he unmake it and then make it again? If we read that as like a straight through chronology, it doesn't make sense. But when we think about it in like that ancient Hebrew storytelling way, it makes sense because we're telling it from here's who made the world. Okay, back to the start. Now we're going to tell it again with the specific purpose of showing that God made people. And here's how people interact with people. Here's how people should interact with God. Here's how people should interact with the rest of creation. That's Genesis chapter 2. It's just telling the story twice. And sometimes the Bible does this like on a bigger level. And the book of Daniel would be a really good example of that. Where you kind of have like the first half which contains like all the best stories ever told. And then you've got the second half and you're just like what on earth is going on here? And if you're just like reading it the way we read stories it kind of doesn't make sense. But when you read it for the story that it is, the book of Daniel being 
the story of Yahweh versus the gods of Babylon, it makes total sense. It tells it like, it tells the whole story in the first six chapters from the perspective of here's how this was like witnessed by the people. And then in chapters 7 through 12, it tells the same, the same story again and beyond, but this time Daniel gets a little peek behind the curtain at what is going on in the spiritual realm. So when you read it like that, yes, the giant crazy genre shift, but one that makes sense. And the Bible does this a lot, and it even does it at like a macro, like whole Bible level. And Palm Sunday is a really good example of that. And even though like Genesis chapters one and two are like a retelling of the actual factual same events, when we think about the Bible retelling the Palm Sunday story, it's not like those actual factual events in history, but when we read it, we're starting to see, okay, here's the deal, right, you are retelling the same story, or at least the same things are coming up, the same themes are popping up, okay, are we getting the picture? It's really fun. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at that uh, Palm Sunday story from three different storytelling perspectives. We're going to kind of kid on that we are at the time frame of the people who witnessed it and participated in it for the very first time. So we're going to get like a past day perspective, we'll get their contemporary present day perspective, and we'll get a future day perspective as well. So that's fun. Let's get into it. Um, you have probably heard it said already today, but in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, including people, and it was amazing. The special God and his special people had a special thing going on in that special place, and it was amazing. And then the people did the one thing that God told them not to do, and then sin was a part of the world, and sin was a part of people, but God already had a plan for how he was going to fix that, and part of his plan was he knew he had to punt the special people from the special place because they hadn't acted like the special people. They hadn't treated him like he is their special God. And it was part of the plan that he had to remove them from the garden. It was part of his plan. He does have a plan. He is executing his plan. But that doesn't mean that things are going to get better anytime soon. In fact, things get way worse pretty quick and God knew and it broke his heart but he knew that he had to send a flood over the world but he rescued Noah and Noah's family so that he could keep going with people and start again with people at the same time and God kicked his plan for fixing the special thing that God and people had going on in the garden into the next level when he gave three promises to Abram and Sarah and those three promises essentially were I will be your special God and you will be the start or at least the restart of my special people and we will have a special place where we live together and enjoy that special thing just like it was back in the garden. That sounds familiar to us. We're already starting to see how the Bible tells the same stories over and over and over again. Look, those promises are amazing and they happened kind of. Like they started to happen, but if you know the story, you'll know that God's people ended up in Egypt and while they were in Egypt, they were enslaved there and God was not okay with that, like not even a little bit, so he set them free. But 
before he set them free, he gave them a bunch of like pretty specific instructions about a festival that they had to celebrate to like celebrate the getting set free thing. It took a week for them to get ready for this festival, which we now know is Passover. Like God gave them instructions for how to prepare. He gave them instructions for how to cook the meal that they would eat to celebrate. He would give them instructions about how to eat the meal that they would celebrate. Some pretty specific instructions. And in my humble opinion, this is kind of where we get to the first telling of the Palm Sunday story. It doesn't look like Palm Sunday yet, but the ingredients are there. Let's check it out from uh, Exodus chapter 12. The words are going to be up on the screen. If you do have a Bible and you'd like to look that up, we're going to start reading in verse 7. We're going to read down to verse 14, but uh, they're right up here. If you want to follow along there, that's cool. Okay. It says, they must take some of the blood of the lamb that they're going to kill and eat, and they must take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. They are to eat the meat that night They should eat it roasted over the fire along with the unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roast it over the fire, its head as well as its legs and its inner organs. You must not leave any of it until morning. Any part left of it until morning you must burn. And here's how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel. Your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You're to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover, because I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgment against the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you're staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. that. I'm going to cry later, so I can't cry now. Anyway, what was I talking about? Oh, yes, uh, death and destruction. This is to be a memorial for you, and you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You're to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statute. Right, so a bunch of very specific instructions in there, how to get ready, how to cook it, how to eat it. And something that is fascinating for me is that they're not allowed to leave any leftovers and they have to eat it with their jackets already on, like ready to roll. And the point being that they're not going to be there for long enough to eat any of those leftovers. So just like, just burn them. You're not going to be there for long enough. As God has given them instructions and the people follow those instructions and they set themselves up to celebrate something that hasn't happened yet. And usually when that happens, we're thinking, dun, 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 don't count your chickens, mate. Do you know? Like, oh, I bought this lottery ticket and I'm going to win, so I'm going to spend all this money already, but the draw is like next Friday. <laughs> like You're thinking, dun, 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 mate, stop it. Normally we don't celebrate things before they happen, but God is instructing people to celebrate something that hasn't happened yet like it has happened already. And that takes a bunch of faith and a bunch of trust. But okay, sure. The evidence was all around those people like God was doing something in Egypt, like God had decimated Egypt, like they've probably kind of noticed that. But from their perspective, maybe they're thinking God has done like all of this dramatic stuff, 
But the one thing that we've asked of Pharaoh to be set free, that thing hasn't happened yet. So like God's done of all this, but it hasn't made a difference. Yet, we will celebrate because we have faith and we trust that God is going to do the thing that it looks like he is about to do. And that's this, the first thing that we want to take from this past perspective, like celebrating something done in advance. And you know, like it's something that we do around here quite a lot, you know, like in, in, in fasting week in, in January, we spent some time as a church celebrating prayers that hadn't been answered yet as if they had been answered already. Maybe some of those prayers that you've been praying still haven't been answered, but we celebrated them in being answered in advance. And like last week at the South Side during our share time, there were two different testimonies about answered prayers from fasting week being answered. So you're like celebrating it in advance at the time, being like, you know what, I know that you can do this. I know that you can do this. And then he only goes and does it. And you're like, I knew it. I totally knew that you could do it. And then you did it. Yes. And we get to celebrate twice. And it's good. It is good to celebrate in faith what God hasn't done yet. That is the first thing that we want to take from this past perspective. It is good to celebrate things that God hasn't done yet in faith. And what are they celebrating in advance? They are celebrating getting set free. My friends, God sets people free. Yes, he does. The blood of the lamb was the thing that distinguished them and made them different from the other people around them. Think special people. And the blood was the thing that brought them freedom and liberation from their captors and justice. It brought them the justice that they craved. And the lamb made a difference for them. And what does this have to do with Palm Sunday? Well, we're getting there. Trust me. Let's get back to the story. So when God set his people free, they traveled through the desert. The special God and the special people traveled together until they got to the special place where they should enjoy that special thing going on. But there were big people who lived in the land and everybody got scared. So God preemptively kicked them out of the land, even though they didn't get to get back in it yet. And if you're tracking with me here, God's people, Adam and Eve, are in the special place, then they get kicked out. And then he picks Abraham and Sarah, and, and they move to the special place. And although they didn't get kicked out because of disobedience, the people still did end up in Egypt. And then he brings them back, and he's about to restore them, but like, they, they don't trust him enough, so they're back out into the desert. It's kind of dizzying. Do you see whenever the Bible is telling the same story over and over again? But do you know what? It's fine. It's okay. We're cool. God does eventually bring them back into the land and they live there for a bunch of time. And when they're there, sometimes things go good and sometimes things go bad. And when things go good, it's because the people are treating God like he is their special God and they are acting like special people. But when things go bad, it's because the way that they're living is not reflecting that they ever had a special thing going on with Yahweh in the first place. So God kicks them out again into exile and it's like back to living with the bad guys and it's like being back in Egypt and it is a total disaster. But then eventually they get restored and they move back in, they rebuild a temple and they rebuild the walls and like all the stuff. And like it is, it's dizzying. It's like this like promised land, hokey cokey and it's in out, in out, shake it all about and it's hard to keep up. But God is telling the same story over and over and over again because he wants them to get it. He wants them to get what it actually is that they need 
so that they can stay in the land and so that they can enjoy that special thing that's going on. And now that they're back from exile, surely they're going to have figured that out. And surely they're going to treat God like he is their special God. I mean, you'd think, right? But plot twist, this time the bad guys move in. And I don't know if you've ever had a noisy neighbor, but it's way worse when you're at home and the thing is hard than when you're somewhere else and you can leave it. Look, they have the bad guys move in and it's a disaster. It's like Egypt moved in. It is a disaster. And what's going on? Because... God sets people free, right? Like, isn't that what we just talked about? Like, isn't that what we've learned from the first telling of the story? But, like, surely, like, he's not going to let the bad guys, the Romans, stick around forever. But don't worry. Dudes have figured it out. They figured out what the real problem is. So they figured out how they can fix it. Which kind of brings us to the second retelling of the Palm Sunday story, that, like, present-day perspective because it's at this point of God's big story that Jesus is born and grows up and does Jesus-y things. And Jesus is alive on earth as a person during that like domestic exile, like during the Roman occupation. And you'll probably have heard it said that Jesus didn't come to be a political figure. And you're like, okay, sure, like, sure. Like that argument can be made. But the Romans were a political reality for them. And the Romans were also the reality that like these are the people that's standing in the way of like those like promises to Abraham and Sarah like actually coming to be. The Romans are a major major problem like the god's people just want to be that special people with their special god in their special place but the romans are treating it like it's their special place to be fair they treated everywhere like it was their special place but that's by the by look for the people who were alive at that point the romans are a major problem standing in the way of these promises that god gave to abraham and sarah like and the bad guys are a major problem but are they the major problem. Like the bad guys have always been a symptom of the problem. If you've ever read the book of Judges, you'll know that that's true. Like the people are disobeying God and then God lets the bad guys take over for a bit. Then the people are all like, oh, we need you to help us. So God sends a judge who sets them free and then they live in peace and they're like, thank you God for like a hot second and then they go back to disobeying him again and it all goes over and over and over and over and over again. The bad guys have always been a symptom of the problem, but they've never actually been the real problem. But we kind of know this because we have the full story and we can see what's going on. But for them looking at what's happening, like in front of their noses, dudes are noticing that there is a direct correlation, like there is a direct uh, like relationship between the amount of bad guys taking over and the amount of disobeying the law that they do. More bad guys, like more disobedience, more bad guys, less disobedience, hey, less bad guys. So, I figured it out. What we need to do is not disobey God. We need to like stick to what he says and be faithful to him, and then there will be no bad guys. Then God will kick the Romans out. Hey, hang on a minute. When God gave the people at the first Passover very specific instructions and they obeyed them, they got set free. Hmm, 
maybe we should do that. When, like, it was a Greek occupation at the first Hanukkah, like the proto-Pharisees, like the group that was going to, like, evolve into the Pharisees, they decided to return to faithful, like, obedience to the law, and, like, God set them free from the bad guys. They're thinking it happened at the first Passover. It happened at the first Hanukkah. Maybe it's going to happen at the thing that turns out to be the first Easter. We need to get back to following the law, and that way... God will kick the bad guys out. And that kind of makes sense. Like, it, it kind of makes sense. It helps us to understand the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Like, they're just trying to do good Jewish people things so that they can live in the place that God had given them, so that they can be his special people and they will treat him like he is their special God, so they can enjoy the special thing going on without the Romans stopping them from doing it. They think, I'm just going to do good Jewish things and that will fix everything. And that sounds pretty reasonable. Like, I bet they have been reading Judges like, and a bunch of other stuff. It sounds reasonable. It sounds like they have been reading their Bible, not just reading it. It sounds like they have been memorizing their Bible and they want to do it. So how come Jesus keeps fighting with them so much if they figured this out? Well, it's because they've missed the real problem. Like, the Romans aren't the real problem. Disobedience to the law isn't the real problem. The real problem is that sin is a part of the world and sin is a part of people. And it's been like that since the very beginning in the garden and there's nothing that a dude can do to fix that. It's gonna take God to fix that, but they have been trying like for history and they keep getting stuck in this cycle again and again and again. Like they're trying to fix symptoms when they need to fix the real problem. It's going to take the Messiah to fix the real problem. But good news, Messiah is here. And they know that the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he is going to be the one who sets them free. And they're thinking that, and they're right, because they've been reading things like Isaiah 61, which says the Spirit of the Lord God is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance. And dudes read Isaiah 61, and they think that's us. Like, that's us. We're poor. We're brokenhearted. We're captives, and we're prisoners in our own country. But God is going to bring us freedom and favor, and he is going to judge our enemies. Because God's done it before, and God can do it again. And dudes are fully expecting, based off the Bible, for when Messiah comes, that he is going to be a bad guy, kicker outer guy. And it turns out that instead they get a baby. So in this last like little like lap of the New Testament for Bible read through, I've, I've kind of just found myself like doing this thing where I am like thinking, how would I feel if I was in that person's shoes, like the people who are experiencing the events of the Bible, like in real time, like how would I feel? How would they feel? How do I think they would feel? How would I feel if that was me? And like we have the benefit of like having like the entirety of the scripture so we can look back on things and know how the story ends, but for the evidence that was available for them, they're gonna be like, we need a deliverer. And what we've got is a baby? Like no, no thank you, no thank you. 
We need something way better than that. And look, we know that Jesus is going to grow up and do Jesus-y things and that he is going to set them free. And like he's going to do a way, way, way more important work than setting them free from the Romans. But they don't know that. They don't have that perspective yet. But they just are able to see what is right in front of them. And at the time of the Palm Sunday event, dudes have seen the evidence that's been in front of them. This guy Jesus has been doing and saying a bunch of amazing things. And they're starting to get that flavor of it being like a first Passover thing where God is about to do something. And we're going to celebrate it already. So let's get to the actual like Palm Sunday story. Um, Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11, which says, When they, so like that's Jesus and the people following him. When they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent out two disciples telling them, Go into the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see, your king is coming to you, gentle, and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road, Others were cutting branches from trees and and spreading them on the road. Then the crowd who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heavens. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in uproar saying, who is this? And the crowd were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And you guys, this is it. This is the moment that they have been waiting for history, for the king is here, and not just any king. They've had kings before. This is the Messiah. And Matthew lets us know that this is going to be plainly, obviously, Messiah to them by saying that it fulfilled actually two prophecies. The like tell daughter Zion bit is quoted from Isaiah 62, which is all about the restoration of Jerusalem um, through God's appointed Messiah bringing justice. And also mentions the daughter Zion and all the donkey stuff in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And it's all about the victorious king and the restoration of Jerusalem. And the people are um, instructed to shout for joy and in triumph, which the people in Jerusalem promptly did. And when they shouted, they were quoting from Psalm 118, which is a very Passover psalm. It's all about God defeating his enemies and setting the people free. And actually, you can stand in defiance of your enemies because God is on your side. And it includes this plea, which is still a plea, but it's not like a begging thing. It's a plea in the sense that I am supremely confident that God can do it. It's translated save us into English in Psalm 118. But a save us in the context of I know that you can do this. Like I know it. I am so confident that you can save us. So save us. Like do it now. It's a plea, but it's a confident plea. Very appropriate for Passover. 
and very appropriate for Palm Sunday. Remember, like Palm Sunday event happens at the start of the Passover festival. It works. And like dudes know all that passover stuff from the first retelling of the story. And they see that and Psalm 118 makes sense for them a lot in this moment. It's very Passover-y, but it's also very Messiah-y. It's got like that like Son of David thing in it, which is not so secret code name, for Messiah. And he's blessed, and he comes in the name of the Lord, and he is worthy to be praised. And we're hitting this moment in history where it looks like, for the people there, it looks for all to see that Jesus is pointing back to the Exodus story, and he is going to be like the person who, like through God, defeats the gods of the nations and defeats their oppressors and brings justice and freedom to the people. And these dudes are loving it. And why wouldn't they love it? Why wouldn't they love it? They get to not just witness this like moment that they have been waiting for history for, but they get to participate in it. They get to do it. Like Moses didn't get to do it. Abraham, Sarah didn't get to do it. Aaron, Miriam, no, they didn't get to do it. Jacob, Joseph, no, they didn't get to do it. Joshua or Caleb, they didn't get to do it. Like all of these heroes that have gone before didn't get to like witness or participate in this moment, but they get to do it. This is incredible and huge and massive and they are freaking out with joy because the moment has come and the Messiah is here and he is here to set his people free and they are right. Jesus is Messiah and he is here to set his people free, but just not in the way that they were expecting because they learned all the Passover stuff from the first, retel- like the first telling of the story, except they forgot about one bit. They forgot about the lamb. Like how could they forget about the Passover lamb? Well, they know what happens to Passover lambs. They know they get killed. They know that their bodies are broken. They know that their, its blood is shed. They know what happens to Passover lambs. And they knew that it was a, the lamb's blood that was the thing that made the people distinct from the people who were going to get judged. And that's what they're celebrating. It even seems that Jesus' disciples kind of like missed that thing. And Jesus had to reinforce the point when they were celebrating Passover, like the following Thursday. And he like reinforced them that he's the Passover lamb that is going to get slain. He said like this, this bread, like this is like my body. It's going to be broken for you. And like this wine poured out, like this is my blood poured out for you. And he had to like walk them through that. Jesus' suffering and his death is part of the whole salvation thing. He's not going to kick the bad guys out. He's not going to defeat the Romans. In fact, the Romans are going to kill him. But through his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, by being the Passover lamb, he is going to achieve a much, much, much more important work because Jesus is Messiah. And he is here to set his people free from sin so that sin doesn't need to be a part of the world or a part of people any more. The thing that God is about to do is fix the special thing that God and people had going on in the garden. So the first telling of the story is is focused on Passover. And we see that God is about to do something amazing and that amazing thing is setting people free. The second time we hear the story retold is a focus on Messiah. He is about to do something amazing and he is about to set people free 
but free from sin. He's about to fix that special thing that God and people had going on in the garden. And people like who were contemporary to that moment, they got a sense of what is going on. And like, I, like they, they didn't have all the data that we have. So they were able to see what was going on in front of them. And they came to the conclusion that God is about to do something amazing. And he's going to set us free. They just didn't quite figure out what that thing was yet. Okay, um, that's the present day perspective. We're going to move on to the future perspective in a moment, but actually that's been quite a lot so far. So let's have a little change of pace for a second. And this is the bit of the morning where you get to watch me die slowly inside, and that will be fun for you. <laughs> so do you remember during lockdown when your job changed from kids pastor to kids TV presenter overnight? <laughs> That was fun, wasn't it? Um, the, other, the other week uh, at the South Side, we were sitting around uh, with uh, the lassie who was the kids' pastor during lockdown, and we were like reminiscing about doing kids' ministry in those days like we were 80 years old and talking about the good old days, which is weird if you think about it too much, but that's what we were doing. And we were watching a little bit of Wee TV, and Jamie and I were showing them uh, like some of the things that we did for West Side Kids online in Portland and we watched a little bit of it and like I'm glad that I did those things and I'm glad if it was like of any help to any parent or any kid at any stage but when you look back on it you are just kind of like so <laughs> let's watch hey hi hey welcome to the song bag friends we're out of our house. Look, we're at church today and we are so excited to sing with you. Are you guys excited? I'm so excited I can't wait a single second. Let's, let's go. Let's go. What have I got on my back today? Back today, back today. What have I got on my back today? Back today, back today, back today? Look and see. Ooh, let me see. I hope it's something good, man. What have we got in the bag today? Ooh. Oh. It was a submarine because he's higher than a skyscraper and deeper than a submarine. And we had to turn it off right quick before you hear us sing that song and at the end of it sing. And he holds us in his hands. And I would never live that down, so I'm glad you don't know about it. Um, fun, I'm glad that video doesn't live on the internet in all of its 11 minute long glory wants to watch that for 11 minutes. Look, I'm glad I did that, but it does make me feel like inside, whatever. Um, let's get back to it. Let's get to this future perspective. And the reason that I showed you that is because I'm about to ask you a question and tell you a story. So my question to you is this. When you imagine yourself standing before God as he judges the living and the dead, how do you feel? For me, like, since I was a kid, even before I had seen a projector, I had this mental image of me standing in front of God and everybody being there and God having this like giant screen and showing all of my worst moments on that screen. And not Westside Kids Online, because like, it is a bit of crack, but it makes me cringe, but it's fine. Like I'm talking about all of my worst moments done in secret that you think you've got away with. And I, it's like I think that God wants me to feel every little tiny drop of shame that I should have felt at the time. 
and then everybody else is going to be watching it and they will have two options of what they can think. They can either think, oh no, I thought he was a nice person, but it turns out he is awful. Or they're going to think, I already knew that he was awful. I knew all along and now I'm right. Those are the things that people are going to think. And look, I know that my salvation is secure. Like, I know that. But sometimes your brain knows a thing, but it takes your heart like a little moment to catch up. Do you know what I mean? And it's like that in here, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and everything, but it's going to take me feeling that shame to actually get it over the line. I believe, it's like I believe that God wants to punish me with shame and like leave me like soaking in that shame and then eventually be like, right, Crooksy, it's fine. Turn the video off. I forgive you. And I won't be able to believe that I am properly forgiven until I've heard those words. Now, I know that that is not true. I know that it's not true, but it's like I don't believe that it's true when I think about what it's going to be like for me standing in front of, uh, in front of God when he judges the living and the dead. I guess I just like, have this fear of that, you know. But then a couple of weeks ago when we were reading um, Revelation for read-through, like I read this in Revelation chapter 7. And it says, uh, after this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And if this was me writing and not John, this would be the bit where God fires up his jumbotron. But I'm glad that that's not what happens. Here's, let's see what the people do. Because the people are there and they're clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And how do dudes react when they see God sitting on his throne and they know that he is going to judge the living and the dead? They celebrate and they praise him. Now, I get that that makes sense because I, I know that my salvation is secure, but whenever I have a fear and they have a celebration, like it's like I don't believe that. And when I was telling this, uh, it was like my read-through share, and when I was telling it to uh, my group, this dude Andy was like, don't miss it by this much, which is a thing that like Brian used to say a bunch where he's like, I know you, you might know that God loves you, but he really, really loves you. Don't miss it by this much. Like classic Brian Ingram moves and Andy Young repeated that back to me. Don't miss it by this much. And he was right. I was missing it by this much. And I don't need to miss it by that much. You don't need to miss it by that much. Nobody needs to miss it by that much. We can be supremely confident in our salvation. We really can. So the same day that I read that in Revelation chapter 7, um, I came down here, we were sitting at the little uh, Jesus bar, uh, me and Laura, and we were pl planning the prayer blogs that are going to be part of prayer week for this week. And um, Laura had this idea that we should do one that kind of starts with worship as kind of like the springboard to our prayer. And we decided that it would be good to use like, I don't know, use like praise and worship to set the platform for some confession and repentance. And we were sitting there um, and Laura and I are both like out loud thinkers. So she's going off and like, she's got a million ideas. Laura is one of the most creative people that I know. And I am just in space. I am nowhere near her. Like I've drifted off 
And she's going off with all of these ideas. She's talking, and I'm kind of aware that she's talking, but I'm, I'm like, I'm, my mind is nowhere near her. Because at that moment, I am singing before the throne of God above to myself in my head in its entirety. And I'm just getting like blown away by like the doneness and the finality and the emphatic, like almost hyperbolic language that that song uses. Like we have a strong, like a perfect plea. My name is graven in his hands. Like not written on his hands, they could have a wash and get rid of me. Graven in his hands and like nothing can undo that. And even though nothing can undo that, like Satan will tempt you to despair. And when he does, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. And I'm just sitting there like singing a song to myself in my head. And I'm, I'm like, I'm quite emotional. You can probably tell in this moment, but um, I'm not the most emotionally aware person. So I don't always feel it happening in my heart before it leaks out my eyes. That's a good version or leaks out my mouth. That's the bad version. But I'm sitting there and it gets to a point where Laura is still talking and probably having a bunch of great ideas. And I have to admit to her that I haven't been listening at all. And I open my mouth to try and say sorry and I just burst. <laughs> and I couldn't, I couldn't even get the words out. And I'm just like, all I could say was like, Laura, like I'm having a moment here. And she was like, what, thinking about repentance? <laughs> But like, yeah, thinking about repentance. And the more like I tried to like, I don't know, like I, like I didn't say any other words, but the more I thought about trying to explain to her what was going on, I just couldn't do it. And like I burst and I'm like out that door and I'm standing out outside the toilets out there, like just weeping to myself silently and I'm in the kitchen trying to find a piece of like napkin or something to wipe my tears. And like, look, I cry a lot. And when you cry as much as me, it just kind of starts to get to be a little bit of an inconvenience. Like, you're trying to get through a sentence, but you have to, like, stop to cry and then start again, like, every dang time. And someday, someday I'm going to get through a sentence without crying, and that will be so fun for me. But it wasn't that day. And I just couldn't get myself pulled together. It took me a hot minute, and eventually I came in. I started to explain what I was feeling, and it was just, like, I just got overwhelmed because I was missing it by this much. And then God just closed the gap. Like I got a fresh realization. Like I know that my salvation is secure. But then I just got this like fresh, like fresh awareness that it's done. It's done and nothing can undo it. I love him so much, you guys. I love him so much. We can be so secure in our salvation. I don't know how I've read like Revelation chapter 7 a bunch of times and never seen that it's the third telling of the Palm Sunday story. Like they've got the palm branches and everything, for goodness sake. I don't know how I've never seen that before. But this time, I'm not getting palm branches and throwing them on the ground for like a bunch of people and a donkey to walk over and trample in. Like they're holding them in their hands, they're waving them, they're still celebrating, but like it's a next level. And they're not like, they're not there with like their dirty clothes that they've thrown onto a dusty street, a street with no sewage, a street with donkeys, a street with like a crowd of people trampling over it. Their clothes are washed white. Like what makes a difference? The blood of the lamb, of course it does. Washed white. 
And they're not playing with God to save them, like God's about to do something amazing and it's going to be to set people free. They're not playing, please save us, because it's already done. They're saying salvation belongs to our God, who's seated on the throne and to the Lamb, because there needs to be a Lamb. And God is sitting on that throne. He's not sitting on a donkey anymore. Like the king is on his throne because it's done. It's done. Your salvation is secure in Jesus. So good. Look, listen, today as we remember Palm Sunday, we can think about that first telling and we can think God is going to do something incredible. What? He sets people free. And then as we remember the Palm Sunday story, it's like the Messiah has come and he is going to set people free from what? From sin. So that sin doesn't have to be a part of you anymore. It doesn't have to be a part of this world anymore. And then we get the third retelling where we see everything like in its culmination. And we get to see like the people, God's special people there before their special God in that special place, living with that special thing going on and all the promises will be fulfilled. I just love this story. I love that God. He's incredible. Isn't he incredible? And like, I feel like every time I think I probably figured it out, there's just way more good about him. He's incredible. Yeah, I love that. Anyway, I've got a couple of uh, challenges for you guys for this week. Um, Number one, is join us for 8 a.m. prayer on Zoom. Like, we're starting prayer week this week. Join us for 8 a.m. prayer. Um, We are going to be spending that time, like, intentionally interceding for our world. And look, there are a lot of people in this world who have, like, experienced God's freedom and liberation. And there are a lot of people in this world who have not and are, are, like, I don't know, like, they need that. So we're going to get together at 8 a.m. on Zoom. If that works for your schedule, that's awesome. If you can make it work for your schedule, that's even better. Like, join us as we intercede for, like, our church, our city, our nation, and this world. And, uh, and maybe we'll just do a bit of, like, celebrate in advance that God is going to do something good. That thing he does is set people free. We would love that. Join us for that. Um, challenge number two is make some extra intentional time for prayer this week. And uh, join in on those um, prayer blogs would be really fun. And we're going to be working through um, a, a few characteristics of Jesus, six in all, building up to Jesus as our king on, uh, on uh, Easter Saturday. Um, so join in with that. You can find the link for 8 a.m. prayer. You can find the link for the blogs all at rehope.co.uk forward slash prayer week. Or there will also be like a little like kind of like sneak preview thing of what's going on in the prayer blogs on the West End's Instagram account. If you don't follow the West End on Instagram, here's a pretty good reason to do that. Um, Go ahead and do that just now. And uh, the third challenge is to recognize and celebrate Jesus as your king. And if you haven't done that before, we would love to help you to do that today so that you can experience the freedom, the liberation, and the justice that comes through Jesus as um, he deals with your sin. Like later, um, during the next couple of songs, there are going to be some dudes who are up in the balcony who would love to help you to give your life to Jesus today. Like recognize him as your special God and recognize yourself 
as one of his special people. So you can enjoy being with him forever. Um, that's, that's that going on. Um, I'm going to pray real quick, and then we're going to transition into a time of response and to worship. Um, why don't we stand together um, as we pray? God, look, we love you. Like, we love you so much. And, like, I do, I do feel like every time there's just, like, another depth to your love that maybe I, like, I haven't, like, known or felt or whatever. I don't know, like, whatever. There's more to you. And I just love that, God. And I just pray for, like, eyes to see how good you are. And, like, a heart to feel it and a brain to get it. So, like, it all works together. I want to I wanna love you with like all I've got, like my body, my soul, my mind, my strength, all of it. So reveal yourself, reveal yourself to like us so we can love you more through knowing you more. Oh, you're just the best. Like you're so good to us. No one even comes close. We honor you and we bless you and we say thank you. Amen.